Well, hey, Mike. Uh, welcome back. Hey, Colin. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. Uh, good holiday. Yeah. Yeah. I got to connect. Yeah. How's that going? Um, it's, I just got it. Oh. In, in, like, all the presents. We, we holidayed at my parents' house. And so everything got put in a UPS box and not shipped out until recently. I see. But now we have it. And so I'll go back to trying to compile open source libraries. Um, I guess I don't have it in our, uh, in our notes this week, but there was a story this week on a, uh, interactive movie that was shot on the connect. Did you see that one? No. I'll have to dig that back up. You know, it's about what you'd expect. It's a movie that you can pan around in 3d of the people who are acting. It's interesting. Huh? Uh, I mean, you know, not good, but interesting. Right. Um, so CES is going on this week. Yeah. Have you been paying much attention to this? No. No. I mean, it's it was interesting that, um, you know, there was a lot of buzz before the show that uh, about companies that weren't going and then about journalists who were not going because of companies not going. Um, this is the first year, I think, that Microsoft hasn't gone and yep. a lot of the other really big names. Obviously, Apple's never gone, but uh, I don't think Google has a booth. Um, and so a lot of the big names aren't there, but it seems like it's really continued to be a pretty big deal show. And, and um, in part, I think, you know, my my experience of it is a reflection of the fact that uh, Engadget and The Verge have both really sort of nailed down how to do coverage of an event like this. And so it's a little easier to keep up on it, but they're still able to get a ton of information across. Hmm. I mean, so, okay, so it's a consumer electronics show. It's mostly just people pitching new commodity phones and stuff, right? I mean, that's a big part of it. I've never been to the show. I've always thought about going. Ostensibly, it's not a show that's open to the public, sort of like E3 and some of these others that it's targeted at industry and salespeople and distribution networks and journalists and everything. Um, but obviously, just like any of these shows, it's easy to go if you are a, a consumer. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bulk of the space is similar to NAB in some regards that it's a lot of companies that are looking for other companies to work with or, um, people selling white label products that you can rebrand or, you know, really low end stuff. Um, but then, you know, all the big names in hardware, uh, most of the big names in hardware, like Sony and Toshiba and Panasonic are there. Um, interestingly, I, I, do they, do some of these people, are they able to leave their booths up from CES through NAB? Do you think? I don't think so. Because I noticed that Panasonic's booth is in the same place that it is for NAB, and it's uh, the same booth. Hmm. I mean, I imagine they at least don't, like, ship the 150-inch plasmas back to Japan and then bring them back for this. No, they they probably warehouse most of that in Vegas year-round, wouldn't they? I would, yeah. I would assume so. Um, and, you know, maybe the... You know, they've just designed the booth to fit that specific space. And so any show they do there, they just make sure they're in the same space. It's just interesting, you know, when you consider the amount of setup time some of those big booths require. Um, I wonder, you know, it seems a shame that they're going to tear it down and set it all back up again in three months. Yeah, but three months is a long time for the Vegas Convention Center. I mean, they've got to do 
shows every two weeks at least, right? I assume. I don't know. We'll have to. I guess we could dig into their schedule and see um, whether Central Hall is, you know, as as frequently used. And I don't know. Hmm. I suppose it's eminently researchable. Um, I mean, there've been a few interesting things. I have in in the first few items on our list are just a few very product centric things that I thought I'd shout out because they're interesting to our audience. And then uh, there's a couple topics I I think we should dive into a little bit more. Um, the first is that Broadcom showed off um, the first chip I've seen that integrates H.265 decode support, um, and this is related to something I guess we'll dig into a bit more, which is the um, the arrival of 4K. But uh, as, as part of doing 4K decoding or doing four streams of 1080p60 decoding, which is the way they've implemented it, I think, um, they're also adding support for H.265. And so, it, you know, 2013 will be interesting to see how much of H.265 we actually see reaching our hands. But uh, it Right. Was so cool. now it's completely... it's ratified right they're done yeah Do they lock it i believe so i haven't been paying that close of attention because it's been well, and it's I mean, so vague because there's different standard bodies and you know things go through such a long phase and will be in mass use long before they're totally done um so i don't really know but i guess it, it, i mean it's at least at the point that it's usable um they've had reference very preliminary reference decoders sort of a few months ago um and uh, reference encoders as well, and and so obviously Broadcom's felt confident enough to roll it into a chip. Although it's it's a software updatable decoder, um, right? So which which camera manufacturer is going to jump on this first? Do you think? I don't know. For encode. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, you know, <clears throat> right now, all of you know, no one's really doing 4K records in a particularly sane way. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I would assume it'll happen pretty quickly. Probably by NAB, we'll see at least talk of it. But uh, right. I don't. I, I mean, I, I guess you know. I'm, I'm trying to think here. Like, which camera manufacturer is the most likely to fork their own spec? But they've all done it in the past. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that. and so it's going to be HVEC HD. Yeah. That's what they're well, going to call it? I mean, it's probably going to be Ultra HD, which is the term that's been bandied about at NAB. I think, CBS. although Ultra HD, I think, is the consumer-facing definition. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they seem to like 4K on the on the video side. Um, but what's the, what's the, you know, because every camera manufacturer takes the Kodak picks a, you know, a wrapper at random from the list and then gives it some sort of marketing name. Yeah. I was just taking a look so, here. Sony... I mean, they went with AVCHD last time. So this one's AVC2. Um, Sony's or... showing off at the show a 4K Handycam, but it records RAW for 4K. Um hmm. And it's not clear to me. I think it records raw to an external recorder, so it's not clear to me uh, that it, uh, that this is a shipping product or that it will be, uh, yeah, that they, they would ship it with raw recording like this. Yeah, I don't know. I'm putting my money on HEVC cam. Havoc cam? Yeah. yeah. How do you say AVCHD? Havoc. That's that's what you say? Yeah. Okay. Didn't, Good. Didn't you know? I mean, ClipRap's the premier application for converting and Evoc. That's true. 
This is, you haven't been listening to me at the trade shows, I take it. Um, <laughs> I haven't been listening to you in general for years. This comes as no surprise. Um, I gotta say, Skype actually helps that a lot because I can't hear anything you're saying, which is good. Oh, well, I will try and get closer to the microphone and more raspy. Yes. That helps with the transmission. It's, I, I'm narrowing my uh, frequency band. Mm-hmm, I bet you that's easier. It is. It's more compressible. Uh, JVC released this crazy camera. I don't know why this, this blew me away so much, the PX100. Um, maybe it's the look of it or something like it is, it is, it's a camera with a fixed lens. Um, but it's a relatively fast lens an F1 two. uh, it shoots up to 600 frames a second. It's 1080. Um, so, you know, it's just HD, just HD. That's the thing we're talking about now, um, with a relatively large sensor and yeah, I, um, I don't know. It's, oh, and it's nine or sub 1000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, so it's sort of, the form factor is kind of like a DSLR with a fixed lens. It's in terms of the body, um, slightly chunkier lens than you'd get with a DSLR, but. And it's more of a barrel. It's kind of like the Panasonic, like, what are those, what do they call that form factor? Uh, like the TM 700. Oh, well, like a Handycam form factor. Yeah. Yeah. Just scaled up. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, it, it it just sort of struck me as a it, oh, it can also um, in addition to AVCHD and MP4, it can do QuickTime recording uh, with linear PCM. It can do the iFrame format that Apple tried to launch a few years ago. It's just sort of this a camera that does nearly everything. It seems like for nine hundred ninety nine dollars, it's it's just pretty remarkable to me. So you think this is going to be a general purpose camera, or it's just a high speed camera? No, I think it's. I mean, it, it's. It's targeted as a general purpose camera that happens to also record up to 600 frames a second. Huh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd be curious to play around with one. I'm sure they'll be at, at NAB to poke at um, and see what the ergonomics are like. The ergonomics could be a little weird, but... Um, and I guess, you know, all we have right now are some of the press releases and then the restatements of press releases. So it's possible that, like, the... 600 frames a second mode uh, is, you know, at 320 by 240 or something. I mean, it could could have some major flaws like that. It is a JVC product. Um, but, uh, oh, and Wi-Fi connectivity. It's got Wi-Fi. I forgot about that. You know, it's just sort of what doesn't it have? It, it's pretty remarkable for under $1,000. And, and, you know, re, you know MSRP is 999 so Street's probably 899 Yeah, it will be interesting to see. If it can really do 1080p, 600 frames a second, it's a good throwaway explosion cam or something. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, I'll be keeping my eye out for that one. Uh, apparently hitting the streets in a couple months. Uh, cheap Thunderbolt cables, I think that's the next thing on the list. Um, well, well, no, expensive Thunderbolt cables and cheap Thunderbolt cables. Corning is showing off at CES the first optical Thunderbolt cables, uh, which is cool, up to, I don't know, 100 meters or 1,000 meters or something, uh, hundreds of feet. Uh, and so if you, if you don't remember, these are cables that are Thunderbolt connector, and then they have a transceiver to optical on either end. And uh, 
then just run down standard fiber. So no power, uh, just data. Right. And, uh, so that was that always the plan? Because I know the yeah. spec always included optical, but the plan was always to put yeah, just like, put a transceiver uh, in the connector. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, like, yeah. So do you think we're going to run into issues where... Is anyone going to start putting the transceiver in the device so you have devices that can only be connected optically? I kind of doubt it. Um, at least as far as I know, there's not a standard for the optical cable. And so someone would have to do, I mean, you know, I guess you could use SPDIF or something, you know, but, right. uh, or Toslink, I should say. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, they haven't, you know, accounted for that in the spec. Um, interestingly, Corning also showed off, uh, in addition to Thunderbolt optical, they showed off USB three optical, same idea. Um, no power and, you know, USB extension basically over optical. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So you can do the USB up to, uh, 30 meters and the Thunderbolt up to hundred meters. And, uh, that's pretty cool. I don't think they've announced pricing and I imagine that it won't be particularly affordable. Um, and of course, you know, with the style. No, but it's probably not. I mean, if you're going that sort of throw, you probably weren't trying to be affordable anyways. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, there aren't too many situations in which running Thunderbolt over that distance makes any sense. Yeah, given it's that weird. Not switching infrastructure. Or I mean, I else. guess, you know, if you, if Blackmagic ships their camera and you want to plug the cameras into something. Mm hmm conceivably you would do that or you want to put your drives in another room yep because they're noisy you know stuff stuff like that makes sense it's just uh but like anyone who's running drives in another room has probably running the cpu in another room too right well or is just gonna do fiber channel i mean you know the, although i guess i guess where you end up needing it is when you want to do run your machine in another room and you want to have a thunderbolt display yeah it's just um Again, without the sort of st switching infrastructure to be able to manage a facility based around this, it seems like you're never going to have, like you wouldn't build out a whole facility based on running these type of cabling um, because it's all point to point and, you know, but I'm sure people will find uses for it, you know, once it's available. Um, and also Apple announced both a new shorter Thunderbolt cable and reduced pricing on their existing Thunderbolt cable down to $40. Um, and the shorter one's only $30. So that's, so wait, know, what were they before this? 50. Oh, okay. And how long is the short one? Is it like six inches? Um, I think it's half a meter. So three feet or a uh, foot and a half foot and a half. Okay. Yeah. That's more realistic than, I mean, that's what you usually need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that makes a, it makes sense, and thirty bucks is, I don't know, um, feels a lot more reasonable than fifty dollars for a cable. Like, you know, thirty dollars is sort of the least you can pay for anything from Apple, uh, more or less. So, I guess twenty, but you know, it's in that range of just sort of the cost of getting anything from the Apple Store. Yeah, although, you know. The, it's funny that some of the things that you can get for so cheap at the Apple store are Thunderbolt actual converters. Right, right. Yeah, it's still cheaper to buy a Thunderbolt Ethernet converter than it is to buy a Thunderbolt cable. Yes. You get two of them, you snip them, and then you solder them. And, uh, yeah. 
uh, it probably won't work at you know four channels of ten gigabits. I beg to differ. Um, I did learn something interesting the other day. Um, we finally got our Blackmagic Mini Recorder, mm-hmm. and I was curious, so I pulled it apart um, to look at what was inside it. Um, and as expected, of course, it's mostly just one big uh, Zillinux FPGA, and then the Intel. Um, it has a dedicated Intel uh, Thunderbolt controller. And mm-hmm. when I looked up the part number on that, I realized that the reason that the Blackmagic devices don't have pass-through is that the Intel Thunderbolt controller they're, they're using doesn't support it. Um, so there's a less expensive Intel part number that does not support daisy-chaining. Well, that explains. What's the what's the cost difference between the two? I, Did you look at that? I don't think pricing is available. Um, I just, you know, it, the the list I saw just rated them as like rated them in order of price, but didn't have actual dollar uh, figures attached. Sure. Um. So yeah, um, that you know, again, given that Blackmagic is trying to make the least expensive possible devices in these categories, makes sense if they can save a few bucks on the part and obviously then a few bucks on the port and the everything else. Um, I, you know, I would personally happily pay a little extra for a pass through on the device, but yeah, but I mean that, I feel like that device is serving a very specific need Mm -hmm. and at least with, at least with those little one off in out only things, you're probably not running a lot of stuff on your chain. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, quite honestly, running off the Retina MacBook Pro, because I've got two Thunderbolt ports, I can't see it ever becoming a real issue. Right. Um, it's more an issue, I think, for the people on the airs or things with a single port. Um, right. Because you can't do, you know, you have much more limited options, especially if you want to connect an external monitor um, via display port or something. Right. Um, but you know, anyways, uh, and the black magic device itself, I will withhold judgment for now. I think, yeah. Mm, okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to give them a chance to, uh, get, get a new firmware out there and make sure that, uh, the device actually becomes usable. Hmm. Uh, new Tegra chipsets from NVIDIA. This is not particularly interesting the only thing i was really interested to see was that this is um this is a system on a chip sort of thing with an arm processor and graphics and everything else that you would use to build a tablet or a phone potentially um and it has a software defined modem on it software defined radio Hmm. um and this is the first thing i've seen in the mobile space that at least prominently talks about having a software defined radio right on the system on a chip package as, as part of So are that. most people doing, I mean, is this like a working technology now, software defined radio? I guess. I mean, as I say, this is the first thing I've seen, but it, you know, it seems like it could be really huge because when you pull apart, you know, an iPhone five, the Broadcom, uh, radio chip is a huge chip. It's a huge power draw. Um, and I gather a relatively expensive component. The NVIDIA chip, they say, by doing it in software-defined radio, they say it's 40% less space than a dedicated chip would be. Wait, um, how does that make any sense? Because they're running it on like a 1.5 gigahertz quad-core ARM processor. It's- okay, but 
how can how can switchable transistors take up less space than regular transistors? I don't. I'm not a chip designer. I'm just. I mean, I, the only way that makes sense is because you only have to put in one enough transistors to cover one type of radio at a time. You know, because most of these other chips are like they support 15 different flavors of right. connections. Right. So maybe like yeah, so we can we can take those transistors and use them to only support this one frequency of LTE and this one Wi-Fi form, you know, protocol. So we're only doing G right now and we're only doing that maybe makes sense, but yeah, I'm not sure. And I don't, the, I haven't, I went looking this afternoon to try and find some more details on the, the software defined radio package and couldn't find much. Um, so I don't know, for example, how, the different frequencies you might use when building a tablet, for example, are impacted by antenna design and how much flexibility you really have there. If this is something that allows for any sort of new consumer facing behavior, if this is purely a, um, you know, parts cost and power efficiency savings sort of thing. Those are good too. Yeah, absolutely. But it would be interesting if, you know, this opened up some, you know, future upgradability um, options for consumers or, you know, even better world roaming than we already get. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch and to see if um, other people in this in this game, particularly, you know, Apple with the next um, integrated package they do, which I guess would be the A7 at this point. Um or some of the other people who, you know, Texas Instruments and some of the people who build these packages um, start to also roll in the software-defined radios. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if this is the year that takes off. Yeah. So we should talk about, it's not on here, but we should talk about NVIDIA's other thing too, their grid box. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Can you explain that? Um, I can tell you what I think it is. Okay. And I could say it with a very sure tone of voice. That would be what you do. Okay. So what I think it is, is so the grid, it, it is called grid, right? Yeah. Okay. They're these server units that, you know, that seem to be designed for deployment in these companies that are coming up with like timeshare gaming over the in a cloud gaming where you you have something attached to your TV at home, but it doesn't contain, you know, it's basically a dumb terminal for an Xbox sitting somewhere else. Um, you know, there have been a couple people who've tried this. They haven't seemed, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a gamer, but they don't seem like they've really taken off. Um, the idea is that instead of doing like a Netflix thing where you, you know, instead of going to the store and buying video games, or doing one of those Netflix things where they ship you games every month. You just like connect over the internet to apply, you know, a little console unit that runs whatever game you want. And so that way you can get games from all the different consoles you can get. Um, and, know, and essentially, you, don't have you to need pay for a lot less. Costs. And yeah, you, you do it as, you know, as a monthly fee instead of a you know, your your loan, your leasing hardware. Right, and you don't in you don't fractional high power time computer stuff. Uh, in home. Yeah, and so 
that hasn't really I don't think it ever yeah. took off. There was this a is like their that, uh, that did so it died. What they say is that it's a you know a rack mountable server unit that is like a pile of GPUs. Um, the thing I saw in their press release is it's equal to seven hundred Xboxes, which in, in just, like a four U rack space. Let me stop you there because I think that's uh, kind of an amusing statistic. I, I, I just, um, I, I, it actually has, I think, 20 or 24, I guess 24 NVIDIA Keplers in it. Um, and I think that they were using that 700 Xboxes as a sort of amusing, um, you know, well, as a marketing uh, gimmick. Because the Xbox 360 is, what, six years old or something, you know? My my iPad has substantially more GPU power than the Xbox, so it, it, right. I, but for the market they're going for, I yeah. mean, the Xbox 360 is still the most powerful yeah. console platform, right? Yeah, I just you know, I thought it was sort of funny to market it that way, but I mean, right. But to, I mean, to the sort of people, I mean, they're not pitching this for like installing at home for the people who are building out these like timeshare console things. I mean, they're probably worried about the marginal cost of, you know, one person connected playing an Xbox 360. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... And the issues with these services, like with OnLive and everything, have been twofold. One is um, no one's really figured out how to make the pricing model work in a way that's profitable for the company doing it and still within the range of what gamers are willing to pay because, you know, gamers typically don't play more than a few different games, you know, simultaneously even when given access to one of these services. And so it's hard to, for them to make the, the choice. Um and then the the bigger one has been latency and, you know, making sure that with the fast twitch sort of games, you still can have a good experience. Yeah. But, I mean, you you got to figure everyone wants to do this. Yeah, well, like, especially with, you know, Consumers would love to not have to buy hardware. I mean, hardware has always been a losing proposition for the people who make it. Like, I mean, the problem is it kind of, like, if I was... The only people who can't like that NVIDIA is making this is Microsoft and Nintendo. Right. Because this kind of removes them from the equation. I mean, it's always been the the software people make out like bandits designing games. And they need the, you know, they need the people designing consoles because otherwise, you know, they can only target PC users. Um, but this, I don't know, this seems like a good... Well, now, do you think this is interesting <clears throat> as just NVIDIA now sells a box with 24 Keplers in it, a 4U rack mount box? Yeah, I mean, this is this is what I want to know is, can you just take this and run it as a single machine? Because the thing, I mean, one of the things it has is a, it's got a bunch of built-in... Um, like hypervisor type stuff. Right. What's the general term for that? Uh, hypervisor virtualization. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Each rack is seven hundred. Right. Xbox three sixties. And it is uh, ten or so in a rack. Twenty. But it's a so four U box. Seventy. It's a tall rack. I don't know. 
Huh. Anyways, it would be... I'm curious to find out if I can get one of these and run, you know, Blender on it or uh, Resolve. Yeah. I don't know that they've announced pricing. Have you seen anything like that? I haven't seen anything about pricing. Huh. Well, it's neat looking. Yeah, I mean... I don't know if it's anything you can't build yourself from existing NVIDIA cards. Like, I'm, is it, I'm not sure it's much more than that. Sure. Yeah, I guess it would be more interesting if they'd done, like, a uh, you know custom motherboard with everything on board and a 1U case or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. I thought this was a lot more powerful than it is. Yeah, I mean, other companies do sell GPU compute boxes. I don't know how this will stack up. Um, price-wise or performance-wise, but... Right. I mean, the big thing was... I mean, the thing that was supposed to make this, at least, you know, what I seem to get out of the little bit of PR they've been doing, is that the big thing is that, uh, you know, right now, the one of the really expensive things, um, like performance-wise, with GPGPU, like general processing on a GPU is switching out context. So changing what you're doing mm-hmm. um, to the point where like doing math and connecting a monitor to the same card is pretty bad um, just because it has to like stop processing the math, unload everything from VRAM, load new stuff in, draw a frame to send to the, to the monitor unload all of that, load back everything, do some more math. And so one of the things that we're talking about is how they can run multiple, you know, it sounded like they could be running multiple clients on a single card at the same time, Hmm. like different whole standalone OSs. So they have like these little hypervisors running, you know, different, you know, instances of the same thing and they can be running them concurrently or they're able to switch them. I don't know if they can do that without the sort of painful overhead that is there now, but that would be interesting. Yeah, indeed. I, I wonder if but other than that, I paper. don't see a lot that this does other than build out a bunch of NVIDIA's in a box for you. Yeah. So the big news at NAB, I think, or CES this year, uh, was 4K TVs. Is this interesting to you at all? I didn't hear anything you said. Huh. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, how about now? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, the big news at CES this year was 4K TVs. Yeah. Is that interesting to you? And OLED. Yes. But not 3D. No. Do you have any thoughts on the matter? <laughs> um, they, you know, they seem. I just, I'm not okay. I'm like, I, I don't know. They're not gonna. They're more resolution than anyone needs at home. They demo really well at a Best Buy, so they're probably gonna take off. Eventually. Which just you know, I mean it it. 
it fulfills all the needs that they have, which is everyone needs to buy a new TV and everyone needs to buy a new chain workflow in order to get stuff to the TV. Yeah. I mean, and they can probably sell it to everyone. Yeah. The, but the, I don't think there's a reason for any of it. No. I mean, you know, I'm interested as a computing user in getting this kind of resolution on my computer. Yeah. Um, the, the, I guess the one interesting thing, just in comparison to all past launches of new technologies, whether it's uh, HD or 3D or even, you know, going, going back to whichever technology you want to pick, is that Sony's actually, as part of their 4K launch, uh, you're going to get a loaned content box with your 4K TV that'll be preloaded with 4K movies, and it'll connect to the internet to download more 4K content. And so they're sort of acknowledging that there is not a way to do content reasonably. Um, and rather than just sort of saying, good luck with that, they're including a solution. Huh. Um, you know, none of these are affordable. I think most of the going rates are in the five-figure range, um, especially for things like the 4K OLED TVs. Right. I mean, they're making them sub ten thousand, aren't they? Yeah, I guess some of them are more in the five thousand dollar range, but yeah. um, a lot of you know the the big exciting ones are more in the twelve to fifteen range. The big ones. I'm not going to even give you exciting. Okay, I meant exciting from the people selling them's perspective. Oh, they're all exciting then. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sort of in the same boat. I I've seen 4K. You know, we've seen 4K projected and other things at nab for years um it's nice i i question whether most consumers have really noticed that their world is better with hd um and so again 4k probably. i mean hd looks a lot better than sd it does i just i'm not sure you know because it's been so gradual because there's still standard def stuff broadcast especially if you have uh cable tv you still get a lot of standard def content um I, I just wonder the degree to which people are really even aware of. Um, I, all I know is over Christmas, my parents made me find them the HD version of one of the channels that had disappeared because they didn't like watching an SD. Huh. Interesting. So it's there. Although I have to say, I couldn't actually tell. Right. <laughs> I was like, are you, I mean, I looked at it and the HD is bad enough that I was like, are you sure this isn't the HD one? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, so everyone says, <clears throat> everyone always says that you, you know, basically like one vertical, what's the, I don't know, that someone came up with some math for doing this. Like one, once you stand one and a half diagonal. Oh, yeah. Your, your distance from your set. Distance from the set is more than one and a half times the vertical, like, size of the set. You can't see more than 720p or... Right, yeah, it has to do with... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's not really true. I mean, that was done... I don't know, because I think... I don't know. I mean, because there has to be some opportunity here for more resolution. I mean... TVs are really low resolution. Right, but you're sitting a long ways back from them. Yeah, but... I mean... 
they're they're becoming more and more like computers. We're doing we're putting more and more interface on them, and interface tends to include text. Like well, I can't imagine. I mean, you and I are both the people who claim we need Retina displays. Yeah, but again, we're sitting right about one and a half times diagonal from our Retina displays. Right, but a Retina display is what three, four, eight times as much resolution. I mean, PPI in, in is what we're talking PPI. about here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, my, I can't believe like it may be the sort of thing that like yes, when watching TV, you don't care if it's more resolution than this. But I think the the statistic that gets thrown around may be flawed. I mean, I haven't actually. I don't even remember what it is, but I'm starting to get the impression that like these two things can't be both be true. I mean, there's, there, there is, you know, a resolving power of your eye issue, but, um, you know, my take is I have a 42 inch plasma, um, that is 1080p. Um, I honestly don't think I noticed the difference between 720 and 1080 content sitting on my couch, which is, um, you know, no, but way. if you were to throw up black, like black on white text, right? Well, what I was going to say is that um, I recently switched from running my Mac Mini connected to the Mac Mini I have connected to the TV. I've recently switched that from running at 720 to running at 1080, um, and the experience is that it's really hard to use. Um, that it's um, everything's too small, and my I have real trouble reading text at that resolution, and I don't know. Hmm. So wait, when you switch the resolution on the Mac Mini, it doesn't scale everything? Well, no. I'm, I mean, I'm saying... So I was running the output of the Mac Mini at 720, and it was being scaled Oh, so Mac Mini on Apple TV. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so now it's, now it's running one-to-one uh, mm-hmm. with the TV's actual pixels and... I gotcha. Anywho. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, and again, you know, as TVs have gotten bigger, you know, 42 inches now would be relatively small. I think, you know, most people seem to be getting 50-inch and larger TVs. And right. I mean, your problem is that you have all that other stuff in your living room. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, t- if you knock out the fireplace and the chimney... And you put in a 70-inch, 72? Yeah. You know, it was interesting that just a few years ago at NAB, you know, the the penis size competitions between the vendors were in the sort of 80-inch range. Um, And now at CES, a lot of people are selling 80 to 87-inch TVs as straight-up home TVs for consumers. perfectly reasonable. Intend people to buy, yeah. I find that shocking. That's a really big TV. Well, yes and no. Um, the last thing I want to get to, and I want to make sure we get to this because it's the thing I'm most excited about. Um, the Belkin Wemo products were these on your radar at all prior to me bringing? No. Okay. So Wemo... I have to admit they're still not on my radar. Well, get your radar but ready. No, let's do this. It's about to Start get with loaded this. up with knowledge. Um, Wemo is the worst name for a product ever, though. Yes. Wow. It's pretty... It's wild. like a feminine version of emo. <laughs> it's it's an, uh, Oprah's new channel. 
Yeah. Um, so Wemo is Belkin's line of home automation products. Um, one of the big buzzwords for this year is the Internet of Things. It was the buzzword last year, too. I think it's a horrible term. I thought uh, it was the Internet of Everything, though. Yeah, that one, too. Um, That's good. I like that one. And so there have been a whole bunch of, I mean, this goes back years, back to X10 and all sorts of other home control things. Uh, Wemo is Belkin's line of products that started out with just a, basically a box you plug into your outlet and then you plug stuff into the box and then from your, and it connects to your Wi-Fi network. And then from your smartphone or from a web interface, you can turn that outlet on and off. Um, they then added a motion sensor that you could link with an outlet to control things. At NAB this, or at CES this year, they showed off a light switch, um, again, that's linked in. And where it starts to get interesting to me is announced partnerships with a bunch of consumer device companies to start integrating this technology directly into things like coffee makers um, and other home appliances. Um, so the Belkin technology is interesting because it does just use straight Wi-Fi. It uses your Wi-Fi network. It's not using um, like Zigbee or some of these other other types of networking that are designed specifically for home connected devices. Um, and so it potentially means that there's more opportunity for interoperability. Um, and Belkin's really heavily embraced, um, things like the, if this, then that scripting website and other types of extensibility. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't... mean, so I've been thinking about getting the Wi-Fi led light bulb. Yeah. Do hangers. And the biggest problem with them is you end up with parallel switches, right? Right. So you have the switch on the wall and the switch in the light, and they both have to be on for anything to work. But when one of them's off, you don't know which one. Right. And the problem right. is that, I mean, you know, the fundamental issue is that light switches are <clears throat> a very efficient way to turn on and off lights when mm -hmm. you enter a room. Yeah, and so what I, what I thought was kind of neat about this Wemo thing was that they have a light switch that has the Wi-Fi in it. So you replace the light switch, and then I assume that means that it it's all in one place. So there's still a single source of switching. Right, exactly. Right? Okay, so that's that's true? Yep. Okay. It's not like just a light switch that doesn't connect to power and when you switch it it switches something somewhere else no okay so yeah that's neat i guess yeah i i think i mean it starts to look interesting i don't know that it will ever be the thing that we all need in our houses but um if it starts to be something that just comes as part of appliances and i mean you know this is like a it's a good solution to the fact that some people can't, you know, that women can't turn off lights when they leave rooms. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I that's mean, quite a, why it's called Wemo. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and again, this also may be the sort of thing that us as, you know, childless, um, whatever we are, yuppies, can't necessarily see some of the use cases for a lot of the use cases have to do with you know being away from home and wanting to turn the there aren't any the, there's no use cases the for this christmas lights or um uh, you no. know, get, these aren't and, and i do like that you can schedule things so you could like you know then it becomes more interesting if it's now I've got a centralized interface where I can schedule my coffee maker and my heating and cooling system and 
lighting. And... I think I'm having a stroke. <laughs> I mean, come on. You really need a single single source of login for your coffee maker and your Christmas tree lights? I'm not saying I need it, but I'm saying that it presents some interesting opportunities to, for example, automatically have your lights go, your Christmas lights go on when the sun sets by interfacing through if this, then that with the actual sunset time and, you know, adjusting it by five minutes or something. I mean, you can start to build these more complex sets of actions. And I think that's interesting. So how does this work? Is there, do each one of these things get an IP address that's public how does that work it's like internal and then they phone back to belkin servers and keep you know but so it all sits behind your nat router and then they basically tunnel all of this okay but you so you don't need a you don't need uh like a there's no computer in your house that is the brains right that is the big difference with belkin is you don't need a base station that's cool that's good so how long until somebody figures out how to figure out whether someone's home or not based off this? Well, I mean, once you crack the security of the balcony. I'm sure they're very secure. Yeah. Um, and But people, I mean, people have intentionally done cool integrations using if this, then that with like find my friends or some of these other things to know when you've left the house and automate things or to, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's interesting, I guess. Again, it's this, it's the sort of thing that I think until it's avail- until it's ubiquitous, it's hard to imagine some of the use cases. And right now, I think it's a little too expensive to be ubiquitous <clears throat> anytime soon. Um, but. I don't know. I mean, I've got an X10 system in my living room right now just because I, I bought an LED lamp for... Uh, um, standing lamp I have and it had a dimmer in it and the dimmer didn't work with the LED so I ripped the dimmer out and then I realized I didn't have a switch for it anymore <laughs> so I stuck you know I have an X10 from years ago and I stuck it in the outlet and now I've got a remote control that turns the light on and off instead of a switch yeah but I don't know anytime I hear about home automation I immediately think about Bill Gates's like fancy new mansion he built in the mid 80s yeah (laughs) and how it all like every single quote-unquote feature just seems so like counterproductive right it's all probably feeling a little dated now as well what's that it's probably feeling a little dated now as well yeah like i just don't i don't know maybe someday it'll be interesting um, the, you know, one of the interesting uses I have seen that people are using Wemo for already is um, things like network maintenance and rebooting servers. And so you can say, you know, if I lose connectivity, reboot this, you know, outlet that my cable modem's plugged into or restart this server or do some of these other things. Um, you know, it's an interesting way to put that functionality, which normally you'd only get through like SNMP and high-end data center stuff and put that functionality into hobbyist hands. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not exactly a lot, you know? No, no. Mm, I don't know. All right. Chatter. Chatter. Oh. Okay. So last, <clears throat> sorry. So last time I talked about, 
apparently super carrots. I didn't know what one of our listeners, Mark, was saying. What up, Mark? Yeah, he mentioned something about it, and I didn't even remember talking about this. But last time I talked about um, how they had scientists had redesigned the um, the proteins in photoreceptors in the eye and changed their the frequency that they respond to, and I. Tied that in with the horrible speech I had listened to that talked about how the, you know, most of these, you know, we don't make these photoreceptor compounds internally. We have to get them from carrots, at least the red ones. And so I did a little bit more research because I thought this was going to be my next business, making carrots to see UV or something. Yeah. And it turns out it's not possible. So I'm going to have to return everyone's Kickstarter money. Actually, you don't. Um, I don't have to? Yeah, that's not how it works. Oh, sweet. I just send them regular carrots. <laughs> Thank you for your support. Upgrades. Fortunately, because it's not possible, I've sent you a thousand pounds of regular carrots, roughly commensurate with the $500 I was planning on charging you for super carrots. <laughs> Um, no, but so, yeah. So the reason it won't work is because you don't actually get the compound from the carrot. You get part of it. And then, so it's, it's one of the like building blocks of the protein is what you get from the carrot. So beta carotene is not the actual carotenoid you use in your photoreceptor. It's, but I, I mean, it's like an amino acid you need to get from it or something. I don't know. So I don't think changing that will actually do what we need in order to do this. But in researching this, I found a different solution. And this one I'm pretty sure will work. And so what it is is apparently, and no, this, this, we, I've got the link here. And so you can judge for yourself. I've looked around a lot and it seems like it's legit, but the website does not look legit. <laughs> um, it's great because it actually so the the website is basically all um, focused on proselytizing this idea that all humans are tetrachromats, meaning we have four different color receptors. Now, the reason apparently the reason why we've never figured this out is because we only are able to use three of them. Oh. So the, the, the argument put forth by this is that we have a UV receptor, but our eyeball blocks UV, and so it's not very useful. How do we remove that block? Exactly. So what we do is we drain your eyeball okay. and replace the lens. Okay. So... Stick a, you know, so they can already do lens replacement. They do that for cataracts, right? Yeah. And, you know, obviously the cataract, you know, it it makes sense that you get cataracts from UV light because the cat, you know, the lens is absorbing UV light, which is why it's, you know, that's why it's susceptible to UV. If it passed UV, then 
you know, there wouldn't be any effects from it. So makes sense. Lens must be stopping some. So we replace that with, uh, what are these, plastic or glass when they do these cataract replacements? I don't know. But anyways, do that, except make sure that I'm sure whatever they're putting in blocks UV because, you know, the man tells you you don't want UV in your eyeball. Yeah. This is also part of this is the man trying to keep us down. Um, you don't wear glasses because glasses block UV. You swap out the lens, and then I'm pretty sure you also have to drain the fluid <laughs> and replace it with something else. I'm okay with this. So, yeah, it's, you know, the fluid inside, it's kind of like glycerin. So maybe we can try glycerin, although that's got a pretty high refraction index. What's the fake, um, possibly toxic water replacement that IBM came up with? Oh, fluorogel, fluorine. Yeah, fluorinert. Fluorinert. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a nerd to the human body, but if we pump our eyeball full of fluorinert, a little bit of salt, so we still have the salinity, lop off the lens, don't wear glasses. This this seems reasonable. This might work, right? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of um, what... And I don't think this is necessary anymore, but it used to be that if you wanted to use your digital SLR for astronomy photography, <laughs> you opened it up and you used an X-Acto knife to cut out the IR filter in front of the CCD. Yeah, exactly. It's like that. Same deal. with your eyeball. Yeah. Oh, man. Think how cool the sky would look. And Yeah. This probably voids the warranty as well. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm on board. Um Good. I was actually wanted to talk to you about that because you're coming out here at the end of the month. This is true. I haven't reviewed my employee contract that closely. I don't remember the eyeball slicing. Uh, this is, uh, uh, what's the Dolly film called? We're only going to do one eye for first. I mean, come on. This, let's be practical here. <laughs> That's good. It'll be like pirates. Yeah. Except. <laughs> so basically, yeah, you have no UV depth perception. Right. <laughs> If somebody throws something that's UV colored at you. Well, like a hot potato. Yeah. You'd have a hard time. <laughs> um, all right. I'm on board. Um, my chatter this week is a new website um, from Bootsenall um, called Indie. And it is a website for building round the world flight itineraries, um, which is cool in two regards one because it's really cool to think about a trip like that and two because ui wise this was one of the cooler airline itinerary building you interfaces i've seen it works really slick in terms of being able to string together multiple cities and it's got a beautiful map and then it can actually go out and find um ticket packages i, I forget exactly what that type of ticket is called um these sort of um bone, something bone open right? jaw or something um, but you can piece together up to 24 different cities using their engine and, uh, get back a ticket that is not totally unreasonable price wise. Um, if, if right. So how does that, so yeah, you sent me this, does it, does it let you, I don't know. I didn't play around much because they made you sign up for an account in order to actually look at the yeah things, but on the main page, you can, like, say, I'm starting here, and then this is my next stop, and then this is my next stop. Does it let you skip steps? Yeah. You can um, toggle from flight to sort of hike. I'll get myself there. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so you still tell it all the places you're sort of all the, you know, if, if you, well, for example, this trip I'm planning, I need to fly into Hanoi and fly out of Ho Chi Minh. Um, and so you would just toggle the Ho Chi Minh to Hanoi stop to tell it that you don't need a flight there. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, it pieces everything together and you get back basically one itinerary that is over the course of however long, you know, nine months or something. Um, so you can tell it days too. You can yeah, say, yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to be here for a month and a half. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's literally by the end of it, you just hit buy and you get back a, like an e-ticket that is for, you know, all your flights. Did you do it? No. Um, it seems like it, it doesn't make sense if you're not doing more than a handful or a handful of stops um, price wise. But um, interesting because you get into a different type of airline itinerary at that point. But uh you know, I, I did, I put together a sort of just for fun itinerary that took me to every continent, uh, not including Antarctica or Australia, which shouldn't be a continent. Um, and I had 12 different stops and it was about $6,000. And that includes, you know, getting down to, you know, Chile and Argentina and over into, you know, West Africa and, um, Southeast Asia and, you know, all over places that are expensive to fly to regardless. Um, and so it seemed like it had found a pretty reasonable way to string that together interesting so yeah it's just again a, a very nice interface so if you're into this sort of thing it's worth checking out so cool that's all for us this week uh we'll try and do one next week as well and uh yeah 2013 mm-hmm. Woo! the year of ultra hd and no just that just that yeah And Wemo. <laughs> the U channel. <laughs>